0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. During the Second World War, hundreds of German and Austrian-born citizens living in Britain were rounded up and sent to internment camps on the Isle of Man. Journalist Simon Parkin has written a book exploring the remarkable story of Hutchinson Camp, whose wartime residents included a dazzling array of artists, musicians and academics. Simon spoke with John Borkham, who began by asking what first led Simon to start researching this topic.
2: Well, I had been working on my previous book Uh, which is called A Game of Birds and Wolves, which is all about a tactical unit based in Liverpool that was sort of commissioned to figure out why the British Navy was having such terrible losses in the Battle of the Atlantic. And I, during the course of researching that book, um, had become interested in POW camps in Britain during the war where loads of U boat crews were sent. And there was one POW camp in particular in the Lake District called Grisdale Hall that particularly interested me. This is where one of the famous U boat aces of the, the German Navy, um, Otto Kretschmer, was sent with his crew. And I'd gone to the National Archives in Kew and sort of just trying to research more about that. It struck me as. It's quite a compelling um, scenario. This stately home filled filled with um, with Nazi U-boatmen, um, and I was sort of reading through one of the numerous documents um, there, all about the business of POW camps. And um, inside, there was what looked like, a, I suppose, a fanzine, this sort of uh, homemade magazine titled The Camp. And it was all written in English. And it appeared to have been written by German prisoners, but uh, it was all written in English. And it included sort of encouragements that the readers um, tell Hitler what they think of them and all of this kind of stuff. And so it was quite a confusing document to read and also very arresting because it was really beautifully illustrated and, and it was well written as well. And so that sort of led me to to sort of try and find out more about this particular newspaper and who had made it. And it transpired it had been made by German and Austrian internees who had been imprisoned by the British and sent to the Isle of Man. And uh, this was the
3: newspaper that they made while they were in the camp. That's what led me into this whole world. I mean, let's go back a bit. I mean, Firstly, how, how did the British government settle on the idea of interning people in these camps? Well, internment had been used uh, in the First
2: World War uh, by the British government to arrest sort of, they're, they're classed at the time and, and even now in this country um, as enemy aliens. So that is individuals of uh, the nationality of the foreign power with whom Britain is at war. So during the First World War, Germans uh, were, were arrested who were in this country at the time and sent to internment camps on the Isle of Man. Um and it was a complete disaster. They were sort of kept in tents that blew away. They were given food like inadequate food that had been left to rot. There was a sort of minor scuffle at one of the camps that resulted in uh, the guard, the British guards, firing their rifles into the dining hall, killing six individuals. And so it was like a real, you know, managerial disaster, but also PR disaster for the British government, who after the First World War pledged never again to to intern um to do, to bother with this business of internment because it was complicated and difficult and costly <clears throat> then at the start of the second world war britain has accepted around you know between 70 and 80000 um jewish Austrian refugees from Nazi oppression, mainly, um, who have come to this country. Um, British people thought it was many more than that, between two and three million, but in fact it was it was far fewer. Um, and at first, though you know we. There's this sort of acceptance in Britain that the people we have allowed in are genuine asylum seekers, genuine refugees. That uh, you know we've welcomed with with open arms. And of course, there's the famous transport initiative to bring children over, which was a, a you know complete PR triumph for the British government, as well as of course being a, a very you know worthy initiative. And so there's this understanding that we've offered sanctuary to people who need it. Then in May 1940, with the invasion of, of Holland, um, the narrative starts to change. So British reporters begin to write newspaper articles about that particular invasion, claiming that when the German paratroopers uh, sort of dropped into Rotterdam Harbour, they are met there by... People who had been posing as refugees who come out of their houses where they're perhaps working as maids or butlers or whatever, and and now they're no longer uh, refugees but they're dressed in um, German uniforms and they're guiding the paratroopers where to go. And you know, this is obviously very compelling copy, and there's all sorts of elaborations on how you know the paratroopers were disguised as nuns and uh, there were people handing out poison chocolates and all of this stuff, so it, it all makes for great tabloid copy but it has the effect of um changing the public mood in britain and um Whereas prior to this, people had sort of had this benign acceptance of the refugees, suddenly there's this fear that, oh my gosh, we have tens of thousands of of enemy nationals living amongst us. What if some of them um, have lied about who they are? What if in fact they are Gestapo agents waiting to support a German invasion of the British Isles? Um, through the month of May, this escalates and escalates. So um, uh, Neville Bland, who is a British diplomat who is in Holland at the time, arrives back in London, writes up a report called the Fifth Column Menace. Uh, this term, the fifth column, is used, it came out of the Spanish Civil War. It's used to refer to um, essentially um, uh, enemy nationals living amongst us who are poised to rise up to support an invasion. Um, and a copy of this report reaches the king, who summons the home. Secretary and says we need to do something about these enemy aliens. Uh, the BBC then broadcasts the findings of Bland's report across the nation, and of course, by this time, the the popular press is is in full motion and saying we need to intern the lot. Uh, we've got all of these these frightening people in our in our midst, and we've got no way of knowing if they're safe or not. And. This is really the sort of set of circumstances that pushes the British government into another internment policy that it had, after the previous war, pledged never again to repeat. Um, And... uh, John Anderson, who is Home Secretary at the time, in fact has been resisting this. He doesn't really want to instigate mass internment, and the the government had taken some measures to sort of avoid this by setting up a few months previous to this tribunals. Anyone who had come to the country as a refugee had to stand in front of a senior judge and sort of give an account of their story and why they had fled Germany, and uh, was given a grading for A, B, or C depending on whether they, you know, to to delineate the sort of perceived risk that they posed to Britain. And Category C was no risk at all, genuine um, refugee from Nazi oppression. But of course, none of this matters anymore after the invasion of Holland. And, uh, And the mass internment policy is brought in. And there are tens of thousands of arrests throughout the latter half of May and June
3: and July. And the really absurd thing is that there are some refugees that have come over on transport that are now rounded up and arrested. And and the person at the heart of your story is a man named Peter Fleischmann, um, one of those kinder transport refugees. C- can you tell listeners about his early life in Germany? Yeah, so uh, I chose Peter
2: Fleischmann because really the events of his life are completely illustrative of all of the various geopolitical geohistoric forces that are you know, coming to bear on the on the refugees who are coming to britain so his his early life was one of one of privilege he um he was born into a family of of journalists um who ran a a newspaper in breslau um at some point, and he's never, no one's quite straight with him of the timing of this. Um, but at some point, his parents, who who are journalists, uh, he's told, are out driving um, in Berlin by uh, the Wannsee Lake and the steering in the car fails and the car plunges into the lake. And before anyone can get to it, all of the occupants are drowned. Um, and because um, the individuals in the car were were. Critical of the of the rising Nazi party, uh, there's this sort of assumption that the car was tampered with, and um, it was sort of a, a ploy to, to wipe out these critics of the party. So, th- so at a young age. Peter is, is orphaned um, and believes he's he's been orphaned for this reason. He moves in with his grandfather, who is a very well-to-do banker, uh, lives in a palatial apartment in Berlin and with a housekeeper. And they have a pretty good life until, of course, the Depression hits, uh, which hits German banks terribly. Uh, Peter's grandfather, Alfred, is reduced to poverty. Uh, they have to go out and collect horse manure to burn in place of coal on the, on the fire. And they don't have to Move out of the house, but it's uh, it's a sort of massive decline in fortunes. Um, so much so that uh, Peter's grandfather doesn't never recovers and, and dies uh, within a year from this. Peter's sent off to the Auerbach Orphanage in Berlin, which, um, again, was quite a well-to-do institution. Not like the orphanage of Oliver or Charles Dickens, but more sort of the children are well looked after, given given new suits every year and um, you know various treats. And it's quite a it's run by fairly progressive. Uh, um, custodians who believe in educating uh, the children. Peter is an aspiring artist. He starts going to a a very well-regarded art school in Berlin and and even gains a few commissions for for travel posters and things while he's still uh, a teenager. Then the events of uh, Kristallnacht happen and the orphanage is targeted by the brown shirts during that night of violence in Berlin. And Peter is is forewarned by a, a policeman comes knocking um, earlier that day and says, look, I think that you're going to be targeted because you're a re- remaining member of this family of the Fleischmanns who were journalists. Um, you, should, you should flee. And so Peter leaves the orphanage and goes to stay with his grandfather's former housekeeper, hides in her cellar. This is all happening about four weeks before the first kinder transport um, sets out. Peter's 16 years old. He's just uh, young enough to meet the criteria. The very first kinder transport trains that leave Berlin are. Um, are arranged for those with the greatest need which tends to be the orphans who have who have lost both parents or those who have lost one parent and the Auerbach orphanage is in that first contingent of orphans who are sent on a kinder transport so peter's given a place on the on the first train for berliners out of the city um, And he catches that train, has his belongings looted by Nazi inspectors at the border. They steal his stamp collection and um, some other bits and pieces. But he makes it to to England uh, in one piece in um, December 1938. Still a teenager, has um, no sort of prospects. He's had to give up his artistic education, but at least
3: he's made it to to Britain. And he lives with his uncle initially, doesn't he? which isn't so successful.
2: Yeah so he he actually doesn't know that he's got any remaining family members and he gets to uh, Harwich in Essex which is where all of the kinder transport children arrive and they sort of wait there while while the adverts go out in the newspapers saying is there anyone that can look after such and such child someone responds to the advert for um, for Peter and he thinks he's going off to stay with them and then gets a last minute diversion because this uncle of his has been found in Manchester um he's an academic the uncle Dr Uh, Walter Deutsch, um, who, um, or or Dale, as he changes his name to. And he's been brought over to Britain, in fact, by the... um by the Academic Assistance Council, now known as uh, CARA, uh, for, for academics who, who are in need. Um, and at the time, they were very ac- proactive in bringing um, academics over from Germany and Austria who had been displaced from their university posts by the Nazis and finding them positions in British universities. Peter's uncle has been found a place in, at Manchester University. And so he goes to stay with him, but finds a very unwelcome reception he doesn't really understand why his uncle... Um, just is very unkind. Says you can't even use our toilet paper. You've got to use newspaper. Um, Peter writes letters to the the few remaining people that he knows back in Berlin. Hands them to his uncle and says, "Can you post these for me?" And his uncle says, "Yes, I'll do that." But then, as soon as Peter's back's turn he throws away the letters. So it's a pretty miserable time, and both. Peter wants to get out of the house. Um, his uncle wants him to get out of the house as quickly as possible. So he's only really there for a couple of weeks, um, and then goes and finds, um, uh, you know, pretty pretty grim lodging in um, in safe houses, really for for Jewish refugees in in Manchester. Um, and it's there while he's sort of pondering what on earth he's going to do that he walks past a a business uh, that sort of. I suppose, art adjacent in what it does. So there was this sort of craze, I suppose, around this time for uh, this particular business would go door knocking and say to families around the place to say, did you have a loved one who died during the First World War? And of course, many families did have a son or a, or a father who did. And then they would say, do you have a photo of this individual? And then they said, if you give it to us, we will take it away and we'll hand colour it and bring it back to you. And it will be a, it will be a better way for you to remember your loved one. And so Peter gets a job at this company and his job is to colour these, uh, these photographs of loved ones from the First World War by hand terrible conditions working in a dank cellar uh, where he can hear the rats sort of scurrying around, but at least he's doing something that's vaguely art related and, um, uh, and, and, um, and and it's there that, that he makes a couple of friends, which are you know fellow co-workers, and that's really sort of who who, who help him, provide him with the semblance of a family, help him le- with his learn English and things like that. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's fairly sort of, uh, grim and difficult existence, I suppose, in these few months leading up to war for Peter.
3: How does he end up actually being arrested?
2: He moves in with the proprietors of the photo studio, Albert uh, Ripkin, um, who are Seventh Day Adventists, and I think they invite him into their home because they're hoping to score a convert. But uh, Peter's not really into that, so um, the arrests all start at, as, as I said in uh, in late May. This is when the the fear of a Nazi invasion is is entering its peak period uh, with the Battle of France. And uh, an invasion not only looks um, likely, it looks imminent in fact, and the British government is handing out leaflets on what to do when the enemy arrives, All of this kind of stuff. And so over the latter half of May, almost daily, the sort of uh, criteria by which people can be arrested expands and expands. So first, it's just men between the age of 16 and 60 who are living in coastal regions. So that's where where they're most likely to be able to support an invasion if they happen to be spies. Um, But that sort of the area creeps inward and eventually encompasses both women and children as well. Peter's arrested in you know, about two or three weeks into this process from the house in in the in the middle of the night from the house where he's staying with the Ripkins. The police come knocking for him, um, and he's not really given time to even fetch any belongings. He's whisked away um, in a black Mariah, taken to a local prison, and from there, uh, there he's he's. Transported to a transit camp, a notorious transit camp in the north of England, Bury, called Wharf Mills. This is a disused cotton mill which is used to to house thousands of these uh, individuals who have been hastily arrested. They need somewhere to go. They're brought to this formerly disused uh, cotton mill where. It's really not being prepared for human habitation at all. The floor is still covered in oil, there's you know bits of machinery hanging down. It's got this sort of awful, you know, almost abattoir-like feel. And it's being run by a chap called Major um, Braybrook, who is a fairly questionable character, let's say. <clears throat> he owns a newspaper shop in the south of England and then is uh, at the start of war brought back in, and he's given the task of overseeing this transit camp. Uh, Peter arrives to a very bleak scene. It's packed, it's dirty. There's men of all ages in the haste of the arrests, people who should have been exempt from from being rounded up, so people who are infirm, suffering from severe illness or mental illness. They, you know, the police don't take the time to understand the stories of the people that they're they're arresting, the nuances of them and so Many people who should not have been arrested find themselves at Worth Mills. So he comes in, listens to Major Braybrook uh, giving a speech about, uh, you know, how they're going to be held here on suspicion of being spies. Uh, all of their belongings have to be searched, and during this process, the British guards, uh, in fact, steal. From the internees, take watches, take uh, money, razor blades, um, typewriters. Um, all of this is later proven when Major Braybrook is court-martialed uh, and has to has to, in fact serve time for 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 what happened during Warthmill. But you know, for most of the men who have come to Britain, experienced the benevolence of a democratic state and the kindness of a country willing to um, accept them and offer them sanctuary. To, it's a sort of huge betrayal and turnaround. And, and at Warth Mill, in in their writings, many of them say that they lose all faith, really, in in the British and uh, in what they've what they've walked into.
3: Indeed, it's it's pretty harrowing, isn't it? Before they even arrive at the internment camps, that process is very traumatic. There is another incident that affects some of the prisoners who end up on the Isle of Man, um, and that's the sinking of the SS Arundora Star. For listeners that might not be familiar with that event, can you just describe what happened?
2: Yeah, so the, the British government, as I said before, has sort of always been slightly reluctant to do a general internment policy and in fact doesn't really want to get too distracted in the business of running tons of internment camps. So the, the aim right from the beginning is to deport as many internees as possible. They put pressure on Canada, on Australia to take our internees. Canada in fact does um, uh, d- does say that it will take a number of uh, prisoners of war, also category A internees, so those who are um, believed to have Nazi sympathies. Um, and the uh, the ships are filled with internees and start sailing um, towards Canada. The first ship makes it to Canada with, um, with no problems, but the second ship, the um, SS Arundora Star, which is laden... Predominantly with Italian internees, uh, Italy has entered the war by this point and uh, and so Italians are, are arrested, but also Germans and Austrians. And among that number, um, including refugees from Nazi oppression, are on board. Midway across the Atlantic, uh, the ship is targeted by a U-boat, uh, which fires its um, final torpedo that it's carrying at the at the ship, uh, which strikes and um, the Arundra Star sinks. I believe 650 people drown um, in the sinking of the ship. Some are rescued, um, and uh, yes, I mean it is one of the one of the gravest um, losses of life at sea during the Second World War. And of course, there the were huge numbers of people died in the Battle of the Atlantic. But this was a particularly um, particularly uh, major tragedy and the initial reaction of the press and the government is to say well you know this is terrible but the ship was carrying nazi prisoners and people who were category a nazi sympathizers so while it's bad there you know we it, it, there's sort of an irony in the fact that um, you know these individuals were were fired upon by their own side almost and in the you know the press the initial reports are that the Germans on board behaved terribly, the internees. They were scrabbling and fighting for positions on the lifeboats and um, none of which is true. And in fact, when the the Admiralty begins to do its investigation and, and in, um, uh, interviews surviving officers, um, none of these stories that are printed in the first days following the disaster um, have any weight or substance to them. Um Initially, in the House of Commons, the government says, you know, sort of doesn't defend what happened, but tries to, you know, throw the light on it. Of well, you know, these were these were enemies of Britain, but. As an, inqu- an inquiry is commissioned and as more details emerge, it becomes clear that in fact that version of events isn't accurate and there were there were among that number many Jews, people who really should not have been on the Arundra Star at all. It appears that they have been given places on the ship to make up numbers in the haste of trying to fill the ship with people to go over to Canada. Some of them die, some of them are brought back um, to Scotland after they're rescued. And, um, a few of them absolutely abhorrently, a a week later put on another ship to go to Australia, the HMT Dunera, which is a very notorious um, vessel, because once again, the British guards treat the internees on that ship terribly. So having survived one of the worst shipping disasters of the Second World War, um, some of these men a week later are then put on another ship and sent to Australia, where they have to endure terrible hardship, kept in in the belly of the ship behind wire where in the event of another torpedo attack they wouldn't be able to get out um, again sort of you know whipped by the by the officers have their items of their belongings stolen um so it's a very dark spot and in fact as details of, of these events begin to emerge and filter out to the British public it's it, it Triggers a sea change in the way that the public views the interments, and and where throughout May and much of June, people have broadly been in favour of mass interment. That now shifts, and people realise that uh, in the haste with which these decisions have been made, uh, grave
3: injustices have been uh, meted out. But it's not quite enough to stop the government from doing it, is it? Um, I mean, Peter Fleischman, he he comes to. Uh, the Isle of Man in August 1940 can you can you describe the general appearance of the camp he came to at that time
2: yeah, well, I mean, so the thing is that the, it, it takes a lot longer to stop something than it does to start things. So I think while all of this is going on with the Arendura Star, you know, the wheels are in motion for mass internment. There are thousands of men arriving on the Isle of Man to one of 10 camps there, two of which were set aside for women and children, and the other eight are for, for men, in, including one high security camp that was for members of the British fascists and the IRA. Um, the rest of the camps are. Um, uh, you know, for Category C internees, really, and um, Peter has the good fortune to be sent to P camp. Um, that's the letter P camp, uh, which was also known as as Hutchinson. This is a a you know fairly <laughs> middle class, good looking. Square of, of Victorian ha- boarding houses, three four stories high. They would typically have maybe ten holiday making families there who wanted you know to the feel of a foreign holiday without the expense and the the trouble of having to travel too far. Um, these houses are requisitioned in the first week of July nineteen forty, and the, the landladies are told, "Look, you'll get some recompense, but we need your houses to house internees." Two barbed wire fences are put around the camp, uh, which which encompasses um, three um, adjacent streets and a sort of almost football. Football field size, size um, square of grass uh, in the middle of them, and uh, yes, around twelve hundred men are brought to the camp. Uh, there's a, about thirty to thirty five men in each house. So, bearing in mind what I said about there being sort of five to ten families during holiday holiday conditions, you can imagine how cramped the conditions were. Five six men to a, to a room sleeping on the floor. But having said that, the you know, the conditions are. Um, Fairly comfortable, and certainly, you know, the views down to Douglas Harbour and the sea and the Irish coast beyond that um, give the the camp a sort of confused feel of really being almost like a holiday destination, but at the same time, a concentration camp.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: Peter said later in his life, he had a recurring nightmare of everyone, all of his friends in the camp would be released one after the other until he was the, the last one there, sort of permanently forsaken. So I think even for those individuals who had a generally favorable time in internment, it left some lasting um, trauma.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
4: We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest With BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/Slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com/Slash History Extra.
3: How do the prisoners make Hutchinson Camp their own? Well, because of the, the circumstances prior to the war whereby
2: the Nazis ousted these brilliant academics with Jewish heritage from their institutions, and they also waged a campaign against modern artists uh, via their so-called degenerate art exhibitions. They ousted, they closed the newspapers uh, where liberal or or, um, centrist writers were working, anyone who was not staunchly pro-Nazi. They kicked out uh, authors, novelists, playwrights, filmmakers, actors, many of whom come to Britain as refugees. So it just so happens that the population of Hutchinson contains this rich density of quite brilliant people. Very accomplished people in their various uh, their various artistic and academic pursuits. There are Oxbridge dons here in the camp. There are men who have exhibited at some of Europe's finest galleries. There are world class musicians who have played for the Prince of Wales. There are top flight lawyers and judges who have written extensive books on the law that have changed the way that the law um, works. And so. With this high density of brilliant people, it's sort of inevitable that rather than just fritter away their time, they self-organise and decide to um, stage really um, talks, um, lectures, art exhibitions, musical performances. It's quite soon after that the camp opens on the thirteenth of July. Two days later is when the first academics come out of their houses, take up positions on this grassy square in the middle, stand on chairs that they brought and start start lecturing to anyone who who is interested in hearing. And there's sort of these chaotic descriptions of men listening to one lecturer and then when they get bored wandering off and standing in the crowd for the next one. There's one architect, very well-to-do architect, named Bruno Arons in the camp. He's lectured at the Bauhaus before. He was responsible for designing um, some of Berlin's um, crucial post-war housing. And he sees all of this unfolding and wants to impose some kind of order on it, says, look, this is great what's happening, but I'm sure we could organise it a bit better. And uh, with the help of um, a young art historian in his house named Klaus Henriksen, they together form a cultural committee, uh, which they also call the Camp University, and they appoint heads of different disciplines, so a head of music, a head of games, a head of, you know, Particular scientific subjects, and their job is to bring to you know, approach people within the camp say, Would you like to do some event on your specialist subject? And then they draw up a weekly schedule of lectures, which is posted to a board in the camp so everyone can see exactly what's going on. And this really develops um, throughout 1940s, so that there's a, a quite incredible array of different subjects and events uh, for the for the internees to go and witness and. Um, you know, what Fred Ullman, who was a lawyer turned artist in the camp, says that it was the you know, he'd be already been to two universities. This was the finest university he'd ever been to, and for you know for men perhaps who had had to give up their studies due to the you know, the, the the depression and had to go work for their families, here was a chance really to um, to pick up again their 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 studies. And for for Peter Fleischmann, who's who's in the camp, who has dreamed of becoming an artist throughout his life had to give up his studies at art school in Berlin. He suddenly finds himself around a group of 20 to 30 brilliant European artists. The very famous Dadaist Kurt Schwitters is in the camp. he sort of takes up a position on the on the corner of the square offering to paint people's um, portraits it's a certain price just for your head it's more if you want your shoulders as well and it's even more if you want a half torso and um, there are there are sculptors like Siegfried chero Paul Haman uh, Fred Ullman as I mentioned. Um, many of these artists then take Peter under their wing and provide him with the training that he'd been denied uh, by the Nazis. So for so for him, it's a it's a real sort of step into this miraculous uh, environment. Even if for for some of the other men, it was it was you know anything but that.
3: Yeah. So, so I mean, what what do the the British officers that are manning the camp what 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 do they make of all of this?
2: Hutchison Camp was. Um, was led by a British officer called Captain Hubert Daniel. He was a a former advertising executive. He'd fought in the First World War and then had been reconscripted in the Second World War. And he was used to managing large groups of people and so was given the job of the task of looking after the camp. The the way in which the internment camps on the Isle of Man were run was sort of a self-governing setup. So the, the British... Guards would say, "Look, you're you need to appoint your own camp father. You need to appoint street fathers below him who are responsible for all of the houses in their row, and then each house needs to also uh, appoint a, a sort of house father." And this system of government uh, of governance was instituted by the British government, really, from its experiences. Sort of colonizing indigenous populations, realizing that if you can invest a community in their own governance then it makes things a lot easier. Um, having said that, um, Captain Daniel was very involved in the running of the camp and would you know enter the camp, attend um, you know exhibitions, he would attend the talks and was would meet of course with with, uh, with Bruno and some of the other major characters in the camp who were running things. His wife was a lady called Marjorie Daniel she was a frustrated artist whose uh, parents had forbidden her from going to art school and i think what, you know, she seeing that the, the camp that her husband was running was filled with all of these brilliant artists took some pity on them and you know encouraged uh, her husband to to get, provide them with space and with materials so that they can work and then as well in london there are a large number of refugee and internee Organizations campaigning for the conditions and the release of internees, and one of these is the Artist Refugee Committee, which um, takes it upon itself to gather materials and send them to the camp, so that the artists can produce work, really to sort of, I suppose, distract them from the misery of their
3: situation. You talk throughout the book of this this strong feeling of injustice. Um, you know, I think you describe it as of innocence tangled in the mess of live history, which is a, a pretty apt way of describing it. How does this affect the prisoner's mental health long term? To, to be innocent but treated like criminals. Yes. Well, I mean, I suppose the thing with
2: Hutchinson and Camp is there. There's so many fantastic and and vivid stories about things that happened in the camp. Um, you know, Schwitters, the the Dadaist artist, would may made he would gather up the leftover porridge every day from the houses and make these huge sculptures in his attic um, studio room that seeped through the ceilings and um, you know upset all of his fellow camp members and um, there are, you know, fantastic story. Marjon Rewitz, who is a very well-regarded musician, gave a matinee performance outside, which was attended by all of the commanders from around the camp. This was really, you know, he he had been interned for a while in the midst of doing a run at Blackpool and had had recently appeared on on Armed Forces Radio, raising money for the British troops. So you can see the absurdity of the situation. But I suppose the um, you know, the risk with with all of these wonderful stories is that it gives the appearance of a camp that was, you know, extremely happy and occupied when the truth is that for, for many of the men who had been removed from their families. Perhaps they had wives and children who were still in London, you know, where they had been given housing in Hampstead Heath and around that area. They were very worried about the Blitz and what might happen to their family. Might they be bombed? They were not able to earn any income. So they were worried about how they were providing for their families who in the early months were not allowed to visit them in the camp. Um, There was also this sense of... Um, Fred Ullman, who who was in a, his previous job uh, in Germany, had been a lawyer. Would say, well, you know, whenever a a suspect who, who is in court is given a guilty verdict, they they are in mental turmoil during that period before their sentence is handed down, because they don't know if they're going to be in prison for six months or six years or whatever it's going to be. Um, But as soon as they're told how long their imprisonment is going to be, they settle down uh, miraculously, he he says in his diary. Um, Of course, for the internees, they don't know how long they're going to be imprisoned. They could be here for a few weeks. They could be here until the end of the war, and nobody knows which way the war is going to go. This is also a tremendous source of anxiety for the men. The fact that the British government has rounded up um, predominantly Jews, put them in a camp on the Isle of Man, right at the moment when Britain is afraid of being invaded by, by the Germans. If they arrive, they will find on the Isle of Man a number of camps full of their political enemies. And so there is this huge, tremendous fear that um, if that's going to happen, then they're going to either be killed or sent back to Germany to stand trial. A number of the men in the camp have their names in the notorious Nazi black book. Um, and so, you know, there's, a, there's a, a great deal of talk in the camp of what do we do in um, if the Isle of Man is invaded, are we going to try and uh, break out of our camp and steal a boat and float into the sea? Are we going to take our own lives? And um, in fact, the the scale of the um, stress is so much that um, a number of people do, um, do take their own lives in the camp and in other camps. Um, and in fact, uh, more than 60 people Die in interment on the Isle of Man before 1943, when the records um, appear to appear to end. And you know, many of those cases are pro- probably brought on by the stress of what they've gone through. Some of those who die had to had been on the Arundora Star, and so they've you know endured. Immense stress, fleeing their lives in Germany, coming to Britain, to be in prison, to be sent, uh, you know, to be deported, surviving a shipwreck, coming back, being sent to a camp, not knowing how long they're going to be there, with the looming threat of invasion as well. So, you can imagine um, that there were there were dark days. I think it, you know, there was no single experience of internment of course there are thousands of individuals here who all experience it in different ways and it would depend slightly on their age whether they found friends in the camp uh, whether they were occupied by the things going going on in the camp um, how invested they were in the outside world, whether they had family you know for someone like Peter, who has been denied family and purpose in the camp. He's extremely happy uh, in the main, because he's he's got a purpose and he's got a renewed sense of community. Uh, but even for him, Peter said later in his life, he had a recurring nightmare of everyone, all of his friends in the camp would be released one after the other until he was the the last one there, but sort of permanently forsaken. So I think even for those individuals who had a generally favourable time in internment, it left some lasting um, trauma.
3: How are people released from Hutchinson camp? When does that start happening?
2: After the the sinking of the Arundel Star and the the mood of the British public changes. The the government policy soon follows. Um, the government publishes its first white paper, which outlines the categories for release in the end of the summer nineteen forty. Um, at first, there's sort of great excitement in the camps, but then when when the internees read what these categories are, there's sort of you know, turns to dismay because it really just restates individuals who should never have been interned in the first place. So those who are too old or too young, those who are too infirm, suffering from um, you know s- severe illness, um, all of these people are allowed to be released. A few weeks later, the government re- publishes its first revision to this, which which now expands the categories to um, you know, uh, people who are working in the sciences, who whose Expertise could be useful for the British war effort. Um, This is sort of, again, irritating to the internees who say, well, you know, if you're going to release us because of our talents um, that we can contribute to the war effort, then why did you arrest us in the first place? You know, if it's as easy as that, if you don't suspect us of, in fact, being not who we say we are. Um, And then the third and the final. revision to the white paper includes um, artists and people you know working in the arts uh, but only those who have achieved a certain level of distinction and um, to decide that if you're an artist you'd have to apply to the Royal Academy if you're a musician you'd have to apply to the musicians union I think and there are there are sort of individuals uh, um, there are there are bodies around the, the country who will sort of assess whether you're you're you are you are enough of a luminary to to be released uh, in these in these instances so for for someone like peter it's a rather hopeless situation because you know if you're young and you haven't had enough time to become eminent in your particular field what are you supposed to do the route for these individuals is uh, the pioneers which was um i suppose considered really the the dregs of the british army but it was where um it was where it, in people of foreign nationality were, were allowed to serve and there's recruitment happens in the camps and uh, you could apply to for release in order to go into the pioneers and serve there um, and uh, yes that that works out for for quite a large number of uh, of individuals but really anyone above the age of 30 um you know there were it was fairly fairly strict criteria whereby you could join the pioneers it was really for people who were very fit and and healthy and would be able to to be of use, so yes, you end up, I suppose, in in the early stages of 1941, and throughout that year, with a large number of people languishing in the camp. Those who are not eminent, those who are not fit enough to to go and fight, um, and their cases become, you know, those who are left are, are become the more and more helpless. Helpless and hopeless cases who who become ever more reliant on the, the, the that few number of people in London working out of Bloomsbury House who are petitioning for the release of these sort of less eminent individuals.
3: So, so when does Hutchinson actually uh, formally close?
2: Hutchison remains open until 1944, so a, a very long time. Although, really, from early 1942, the numbers in the camp have, have diminished. Um, it's not only sort of Nazi sympathizers in the camp by any means by that point. There's a large number of um, stateless individuals or um, Orthodox Jews. There are many in the camp into well into 1942 and beyond. Um, but I suppose as the months go on, those who remain tend to be those who have um, significant question marks over their loyalties for whatever reason. Um, And and there, there are all manner of reasons why you may be languishing in a camp in 1943. Yes, in 1944, the Hutchinson camp is is closed and uh, the remaining internees there are transferred to one of the last remaining camps on the island. And then a few months later, it's reopened. This time as a POW camp, and then remains open until the the end of the war. It's not until November 1945 that Hutchinson is uh, finally uh, has been cleared and the barbed wire taken off and the furniture repaired and uh, the houses are returned at last to the to the landladies. Um, they had been promised that they would be given uh, recompense for for all the disruption, but but in reality, it was uh, it was not enough to to keep some of these uh, boarding houses in business, and so some of the landladies just retire or, or give up at that point. Um, but yes, there's very little. You can go to Hutchinson Square today, and in some ways, it looks almost identical to it did in 1940. Uh, The houses No barbed wire. (laughs) There's no barbed wire, no. And there are more trees on the square itself, but the layout is is exactly the same. And there's very little sign that there was ever this uh, extraordinary uh, internment camp
3: there. Simon Parkin, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: That was Simon Parkin. His new book, The Island of Extraordinary Captives, is out now, published by Scepter. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collie.